Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Stephen Caliendo, who is the co-author with Charlton McElwain of the book Race Appeal, How Candidates Evoke Race in U.S. Political Campaigns. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to New Books and Political Science. Welcome, Stephen Caliendo. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me, Heath. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, and it's a real pleasure to have read your book, Race Appeal, that you've uh, co-authored with uh, Charlton McElwain. Before we get uh, started talking about this really interesting book, maybe you can talk uh, just a little bit about your own background and also how perhaps you formed this research collaboration uh, with your co-author. Sure. Um, You know, I'm I'm a broadly trained uh, Americanist uh, in political science. My dissertation was on... Uh, political socialization and um, attitudes toward U.S. political institutions. And so I, I was um, exploring why the U.S. Supreme Court held uh, the kind of uh, a greater sense of, uh, of diffused support in the mass public as it compared to the, the presidency and the Congress. And I had a theory that it had something to do with the way we learned about the court in our government classes in, in high school, because that's one of the, the few times we, we learn about the court in a systematic way. Um, so I spent a lot of time in high school talking to government teachers and uh, reading government textbooks and interviewing and, and surveying uh, high school students. And, uh, you know, I, my real interest, I think, there was was uh, one of legitimacy, uh, questions about uh, the court's ability to maintain it, uh, to enforce its decisions or inability to enforce its decisions, but, um, you know, get folks to comply with decisions. And so I had these bigger questions about representation. Uh, but really nothing to do specifically with race um, and only tangentially to do with political psychology um, and and very much detached from political communication. So, you know, so, as so many of us, you know, what we study in graduate school doesn't necessarily become what we what we base our careers upon. Uh, I met um, I met Charlton McElwain in the summer of 2000 at Princeton University. He and I were both uh, participating in the Junior State of America program, which is a it's a it's a program for high schoolers to uh, sort of learn about democracy, and uh, and they have a, they run summer schools. At the time, they ran them at Princeton, Georgetown, Stanford, and Yale, um, and still run them in all those places, with the exception of Yale, where high school students will take college level classes from college professors in communication and uh, political science. Uh, Charlton's PhD from the University of Oklahoma is in communication, and he's uh, on the faculty at New York University now. Um, and of course, my background's in political science, and uh, you know, we, we started to realize that we had some common interests. Uh, uh, Charlton, his dissertation was on death rituals and the, the cultural differences. He spent a lot of time in funeral homes <laughs> and uh, attending funerals. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, uh, it's really the feel-good research of the summer. Right. Um, and but but it was culture-based and it was race, and um, and I had some interest in, in social justice. Very broadly, and, and as we started to talk, we realized that um, uh, he was interested in politics, and uh, you know there wasn't a lot of systematic uh, studying of, of race-based communication um, in the political system, and so we decided to launch a project in 2001 where we would, you know, engage social science, re- engage in social science research on this question, and it, it, it grew fairly quickly after that to have an online presence with raceproject.org, which we still maintain. Uh, and then, as is natural, I guess, uh, in the first part of the 21st century, we added social networking 
So we have the Twitter feed and the Facebook page, which have become really amazingly popular, not not because of what we do. We mostly just share information there. We don't put much of our own work there, uh, with the exception of some announcements when we're giving speeches and so forth. But um, it's a place where people share and talk about race and politics, the intersection. Um, I know some faculty members have, have required their students to read it or post on it a certain number of times as part of course assignments. And so we're just really pleased about the community outreach part of, uh, of what we're doing uh, with the race project. But the scholarship is why we started it, and uh, Race Appeal, the book that we're talking about today, is the culmination of uh, the first eight years of that project, um, which is, looks like it's a project that, that doesn't have an end. <laughs> doesn't have an end point. Mm-hmm. So this is the first eight years. Yeah, that's great. And so, and you know, and to be clear, given when this when we're doing this interview, the the book itself doesn't address this most recent election, but but we uh, would like to talk about that once we uh, get through this and see what you know how the uh, analysis holds up in 2012 and looking forward. But before we get to that, let's let's talk about the actual book, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I, and I it's my own research, I thought it was it was uh, integrated well. And, and this um, background uh, that you talked about of the two of you, I think, um, comes through in a real varied um, uh, theoretical approach and, and a varied literature that you draw on. Yeah, at the start of the book, um, you write the following. Uh, you write... In this book, we proceed from the premise that our current situation 20 years after Willie Horton and approaching a decade since Mendelberg's book was published demands a renewed look at the political landscape of race-based appeals in American electoral discourse. So first, maybe you could remind us about Willie Horton. Um, Some of the details have been lost over that 20 years. So Maybe you could just start by sort of establishing why why that's the you know one of the starting points for for your work. Right, sure. I mean, and it's it's the starting point um, primarily because it got so much scholarly attention. It was the one political ad uh, that dealt with race that got some scholarly attention. Um, and really, I mean, it tacks back. Of course, it tacks back the whole way through our history, back to slavery. But I mean, if, if we're thinking about these these memes of using race as campaign leverage. Certainly, we could think of a Nixon Southern strategy, um, and, and I think we probably need to think about Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign, where he invokes the welfare queen narrative um, that, that racializes the welfare issue uh, and also uh, serves to galvanize white folks in their um, uh, common stereotypes about African Americans being lazy, um, getting things uh, to which they're not entitled, uh, those types of those types of things, and of course other stereotypes about African-Americans that have been pervasive uh, include a tendency toward criminality, untrustworthiness, and violence. And that's where Willie Horton uh, comes in. And in 1988, um, a, uh, a PAC uh, ran an ad uh, or produced an ad, a, a series of ads, uh, about uh, Michael Dukakis' furlough program in the state of Massachusetts, arguing that it was a revolving door, that um, prisoners that were furloughed uh, committed crimes when they were out on, uh, on leave, um, and uh, there were a couple of ads, uh, and, and one uh, was a, a case study, a, a featured story of a, a man named William Horton. Um, it, and I think it's still unclear whether or not he ever went by Willie. There, there's some suggestion that maybe he was called that in a way to further racialize him. Um, but in any case, he, uh, while he was on furlough, uh, committed some heinous crimes. Um, and in the ad, in, in the process of describing these crimes, uh, and, and attaching them to Michael Dukakis, the, the Democratic nominee for president, 
Um, Willie Horton's image was shown, a couple of different images of Willie Horton. Uh, one was his mugshot. Um, he has a, a rather bushy beard. He has an Afro uh, hairstyle, uh, which was important uh, in terms of symbolizing the, the racial aspect of it, um, and, and other images as well. But, but the point is that um, it wasn't widely shown, but it was discussed uh, tremendously. And it was discussed because um, they, the suggestion was that adding Willie Horton's image gave additional persuasive appeal to the message because it triggered our sometimes latent but, but quite powerful in any event um, predispositions about black men and, and violence and uh, sexual violence. In fact, the act he committed was a rape. And so um, Jesse Jackson and some other leaders cried foul. There was some discussion about whether this was racist or not. Lee Atwater, who was the chair of the Republican National Committee at the time, uh, of course, disavowed any, any dirty tricks or whether or not there was racist intent. It wasn't his ad anyway, by the way. It was a pack. Um, and so, but it got some scholarly attention. Uh, the reason we argue that it needed to be revisited um, is because, not because of this one particular ad, um, but because we wondered how a message like that, as powerful as it might be between two white candidates and playing on our collective fears and uh, prejudices about race, um, how it might work if the target was uh, a person of color, uh, in this case an African-American, or a person of color um, where, the, where the prejudice would be maybe transferred then from the subject of, of the message to the actual candidate himself or herself. And so we set out to study race-based messages in campaigns that involved at least one candidate who was not white. And, you know, you, you mentioned sort of this, this is an ad that, that ultimately wasn't shown that, that much. You know, you just wonder what the power of an ad like that would be when it, when it could be reshown as, as ads now are, um, anywhere immediately via social, different social media and YouTube. Um, it, you know, you sort of, you, 20 years later, you sort of think that, well, everyone could have seen the ad, but, you realize that it probably was shown in in commentaries on the subject, but a lot of people probably never even saw the actual ad itself in, in 1988. Do you have any sense of, of during that time period what the awareness was? Was it primarily um, sort of a, on the scholarly side, or was it was it hotly debated at the time? Were people aware of just the significance? They were. They were. It wasn't shown as an ad in proper uh, very much, but it was uh, debated on nightly newscasts, et cetera. It was part of the campaign discourse at the time, for sure. And one of the things that Mendelberg so brilliantly uh, is able to demonstrate in her book that we reference in the, uh, throughout, of course, we, 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 we build on her uh, and credit her deeply, but um, uh, the, the section that you read uh, suggested that um, she was able to help us understand that, that Horton, the Horton ad points out that so long as the message stays implicit, that is, it doesn't, it doesn't, there isn't text-based race, right? And one of the things that the, the, the folks behind that ad could say uh, was, well, we didn't mention race. You mentioned race. We didn't say it was black. We didn't say African-American. We didn't say the word race. Uh, we didn't say white. We didn't say any of these words. We simply uh, told a story, and we put the picture of the guy who did it, and nothing in there was a lie. He did it. And so there's this plausible deniability that, that's really helpful. And one of the things Mendelberg points out is that once it becomes it moves from the implicit to the explicit. That is, once folks recognize that there's race at work, 
the message doesn't work any longer because we push back on it, because we have this, what she calls the norm of racial equality. This sense, and this is not white folks, this is everybody, that we ought not be prejudiced. We ought not judge people based on the color of their skin. And so as long as I'm making a judgment that might be related to race, but I'm not aware that it's related to race, there's potential for effect. But when I suspect that race is at work, I'm going to push back on it. And that's something that Charlton and I found in the experiments that we ran for race appeal as well. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, you raised sort of one of the difficult aspects of, of um, dealing with an issue like this outside of simple kind of commentary or, or sort of theoretical uh, back and forth, which is how do you actually study this? And you guys have a, have a number of different approaches to, to your uh, method. So, so what did you do? How, how did you write this book? Yeah, this was tricky. You know, we, we were both committed, um, I think, in our own ways to multi-methodological approaches to exploring phenomena anyway. But um, as you suggested a few moments ago, I mean, the fact that Charleston's training in communication, which is, especially in a program like Oklahoma's, which is a very good program in communication, that the, the training is at once uh, uh, humanities-based, that is, that there are, there are constructivist approaches to it, um, you know, Charlton has a strong background in semiotics. I think it comes through in a number of these chapters very nicely and adds tremendously. But he's also trained as a social scientist because that's a very important part about what modern communication scholars do, um, many modern communication scholars do. And as a political scientist, I'm almost entirely trained uh, as an empiricist, positivist, uh, with lots of statistical training. And so I, I think that... Um, we, we both had a healthy appreciation for the fact that we, if we're going to do this, if we're going to, if we're going to really make an improvement over what we know now, we've got to come at this from a number of angles, not just a number of substantive angles, which we did. Uh, we looked at ads, we looked at media coverage of ads, uh, we did some controlled experiments that, that got to the, some of the psychological underpinnings, um, and then case studies, but that we were going to, um, use a number of methodological approaches. Uh, I think that the first chapter, the chapter that is um, certainly took us the longest amount of time to write, uh, is a content analysis of over 700 ads uh, throughout history, ads for Congress, um, that featured uh, at least one non-white candidate. And so what that involved was um, our identifying uh, the candidates, uh, the races uh, that we were involved in, that is the election contest that we were interested in, I should say. And uh, finding which of those spots from those contests were available at the archive at the, the Julian Cantor uh, communicate, political communication archive at the University of Oklahoma. And um, a, as you well know, Heath, the, the very glamorous work of a social scientist um, uh, takes you to exotic locations like Norman, Oklahoma, where you uh, hold yourself up in the in the back room of the communication department for days on end, watching uh, campaign spots with spreadsheets and, and coding. Uh, with uh, handfuls of candy uh, in the in the middle of the table, so that we spent I'm lots sure. of lots and lots of hours. I'm sorry. I sure hope I sure hope it was the summer there because that's the best time of year. It, it, you know what? We always tried to make sure that we didn't have to fly in in the winter time. Yes, yes. Um, so that was that, and, and, and you know we and we could talk about how we you know because the whole goal there was really to get past this sort of false dichotomy of an ad's racist or it's not. Uh, and so we construct this index of racist potential that allows um, a more objective counting with some weights associated to it so that a, so that a, an ad that has some racist potential has, has 
uh, greater or lesser degree uh, of it, that it is not just simply it's racist or it's not. I mean, that's what, the, that's what you get on cable news, right? I mean, they run an ad and somebody will say, that's a racist ad. No, it's not a racist ad. And, and then wh- where do you really go from there? And so we tried to have um, uh, some more objective measures with the- theoretical justification and then, and then some uh, sliding in there. Yeah, and, and the, the the methods I, I found both very interesting, um, very advanced in terms of their approach, but also really did make sense. Um, I think even if even if someone's background wasn't in social science methods, there was um, just the way it was presented. I think was was um, very readable. Now I have a real personal interest in in immigration and immigration policy, and you have a, a, a chapter where you you come at this directly, chapter five, and in that. Um, uh, uh, chapter, you write, uh, the real threat here is that these immigration ads produce a particular discourse about immigration and immigration policy. The real danger is that these ads produce a discourse about immigration that irrationally frames how we view the issue and colors the measures, measures we propose to solve the problem. And so, on the issue of immigration, what was, what was your approach and, and sort of put that, this sort of quote pulled, pulled out kind of somewhat randomly, put that into the context of how you approach the issue of immigration and immigration policy. Uh, the, 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 um, that chapter is a uh, sort of a drill-down case study of, of uh, a particular year, 2006, which was a hot year for immigration um, policy discussion, as you know, but also it turns out that it's a congressional election year. So that um, interaction then provided us with an opportunity to examine the types of race-based messages that were occurring, not just in ads that featured a Latino, although there were those as well, but how candidates uh, were using the, the issue of immigration to make persuasive appeals. And as um, will not surprise you or the listeners, um, there were lots of them that that seemed to do so pretty clearly. And, and I'm using my words carefully here, Ethan, and I think, I hope this comes through in the book. You know, one of the things we avoid doing as social scientists here, uh, we make a conscious decision, we're not labeling people as racist. Uh, the person who made the ad is racist or the candidate is racist. We're labeling the messages as being racist. That is, the message has the potential for greater power as a result of our long-standing history of racism. And so... Keeping that in mind, and there were lots of racist messages in, in that 2006 cycle. Um, the, if Mendel Burge is right, and we believe that she is, that the, the real racial power comes not from the language used but the images shown, um, then this chapter is, is, a, uh, is a powerful example of how that works because it was ad after ad after ad of brown people climbing over fences of Brown people getting uh, put in handcuffs uh, of constant um, links between immigration and crime. And again, you know, we're not talking about you know immigrants from Germany or immigrants from Canada. We're talking about Mexican immigrants, Central and South American immigrants to a, to a more broadly, but mostly Mexican immigrants. And so it's very easy then. Uh, especially an issue that people associate with crime anyway, that is coming into the country illegally is one crime, that the suggestion is, well, if you're willing to commit one crime, you're willing to commit all sorts of crimes. And so the fear factor is, 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 uh, is already in place. It just needs to be activated. And we saw it activated over and over again in 2006. Yeah, and, you know, on that, that point of the, um, the nuance that you get to in the book, this is a nuance that's, Often difficult when when someone doesn't read the book, but 
um, hears clips of it or, or reads an excerpt of it. And I know that you, you, you talk about this book, um, uh, not just now, but, but you talk about it in other settings. Has that been difficult to try to get interviewers or, or, or people, commentators to pay attention to those nuances that you've gone out of your way to present? I haven't been particularly challenging uh, in the interviews or during the public lectures themselves. I mean, you you tend to see a lot of head nodding. I mean, I think it makes intuitive sense to people that if you separate structural racism from individual-level bigotry, if you separate implicit from explicit racism, if you then follow those um, guideposts then and, and do what we did, which is label messages either racist or racial, uh, uh, which is using race but not in a way that leverages uh, longstanding predispositions, people kind of nod their heads slowly like, okay, I get it. I see it makes sense. That is part of the, the I think, the, the terrible, um, uh, I think in our public discourse, one of the things that's, that's quite troubling is that any discussion of race becomes racist. That if I mention race or if you mention race or if someone mentions race, that's racism. You're not supposed to be talking about race because Martin Luther King said you're not supposed to judge people by the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And so we've gotten to this place where you can't talk about race without being racist. And But what that leaves open then is this horrible Orwellian situation where the only people that are getting called racist are the folks who are trying to have meaningful discussions about race and pointing out when race is being used in a way that's detrimental to our democracy. And, and so that's that's troublesome. And so I think that people acknowledge that, that we need to make these distinctions. The, the challenge and what I'm not able to answer for you is whether or not after we leave the lecture hall or, or leave the interview, that that then permeates into other parts of folks' lives, that we're going to start to make those meaningful, uh, both semantic and theoretical shifts uh, to, to make sense of this. Because if we continue to use this blunt language, um, about racism, that everybody's racist. If, if you anybody talks about race is racist, um, then that only serves to reinforce the status quo, which should be really troubling to folks who want to see improvement in uh, in our system, uh, systematic, uh, systemic, excuse me, racial justice situation in this country. Yeah, and, and then towards the end of the book, you sort of make this point in the in the conclusion. You say, as long as racial discourse in America remains stalled in gotcha mode no further meaningful progress is likely to be made. Um, sort of in, in that context, maybe we could look at this, this 2012 election, which, which is not part of the study. And so, sure. but, but what did you make of 2012 in, in light of what you did? Is, is this more of the same of the patterns that you saw or you observed? Um, or did you see change in, in the positive or the negative direction? Well, I mean, as you know, we had a case study of the 2008 Obama election in this book as well, in that, in that part two with, with the case studies. And, um, you know, it was full of lots of examples of ways that race was being leveraged in campaign discourse. Um, I am not happy to say that um, we did not see an improvement. I mean, I'm not making a quantitative judgment. We didn't, like, add them up or anything. Mm-hmm. But, but in terms of the, the, the messages that were coming through, the only reason there was somewhat of a decrease is because the Democrats weren't involved. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you read that chat, it's funny because, we, you know, we've been giving lectures in the last couple of weeks and um, often the Republicans in the room are upset because they're saying you're just taking on the Republicans. But the 
anybody who's read the book usually chirps right up and says, well, you got to read their book because they're not just picking on Republicans. The fact of the matter is the Democrats didn't have a primary season to go through this time, and so the Democrats were not attacking Barack Obama. Um, in fact, it was uh, it was mostly the Republicans. But if you look in 2008, a significant, and I, again, I think more more – there were more examples of race-based communication in the primaries, and that is from Barack Obama himself, but then also the racist message from his opponents and their surrogates, uh, than there was during the general election with John McCain. Uh, John McCain didn't, in, 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 uh, didn't get involved in very much at all. Um, he did run a couple ads that, that accused the president of, of welfare, um, but, but for the most part, he was uh, – but we got lots of, you know, the Geraldine Ferraro and the Hillary Clinton and the Joe Biden and the – I mean, all kinds of examples from the Democrats. This year, we saw it only from the Republicans, but we saw a good bit of it, and it was fairly consistent. One thing that I will say and that I've noticed that was different is the shift was less about President Obama's trustworthiness. Uh, in 2008, there was lots of, do you really know who he is? Just as you suspected, he's hiding something. You've got to know who his friends are. He's not who he says he is. Well, that, that stuff isn't going to fly very well after we've had four years of his administration. We know who he is at this point. That's not, that wasn't mm-hmm. going to work. The shift was more toward the entitlement, the lazy, not hardworking. And, again, not that, not that the president was specifically, but tying him with people, quote, unquote, like him. So lots of you – know, there, there, there was a sign early on a Romney campaign ad that says Obama isn't working and had, like, an unemployment line. And that works on a couple of levels, right? It means that his administration isn't working for America, but also he has this Obama isn't working like the black man's not working uh, sort of double entendre that's happening. Um, you know, Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich with the food stamp president sort of stuff. Um, Sarah Palin, late in the campaign, talked about Obama's shuck and jive on the, ben, on the Benghazi situation. So, you know, we have lots and lots of examples. I wish that we didn't have a lecture, right? I wish that, that the lecture... Uh, was about the book, and we could say, and, and we didn't see any of this in 2012. Thank you very much. Any questions? <laughs> but that's not right. what the lecture has been um, disproportionately uh, focused on 2012 with lots and lots of examples about handouts, food stamps. Yeah, and, and uh, moving forward, what's, what's next for you? Um, are you guys going to um, – uh, continue working on the subject together? Are you working on any new projects that are going to result in a new book uh, in 2013 or 2014? Uh, nothing that quickly uh, for uh, – no, well, I shouldn't – nothing that quickly. I have a textbook on inequality in America coming out with Westview next year. It's a design to be mm-hmm. companion to American government, and that's, that's on my own. Um, Charleston and I have two major – the race project is going to continue in various forms. Um, Two major research elements that are coming out of it. The one is, is will be fairly soon and, and, and a little bit less academic. We're, we're doing an update of Randall Kennedy's book on the N-word. Um, mm-hmm. And we're using uh, a couple of interesting angles that, of course, Kennedy wasn't able to use when he wrote the book a decade ago, um, looking at social ne- networking. We're also going to do some uh, social norm violation experiments where uh, mm. um, we're going to have folks carry around Randall Kennedy's book, which has the word spelled out across the cover in public mm-hmm. settings and, and, uh, and see what kind of experiences that they have uh, with that word and sort of the Obama era. Uh, what does it mm-hmm. mean, N-words? So that's, that's, that'll be coming pretty quickly. The longer term, I mean, I don't know why we have to take eight to ten years to write everything, but the longer okay. term project <laughs> that we're working on really stems from the last paragraph in Race Appeal. And at the end of Race Appeal, we, we say, 
um, somewhat presumptuously uh, in, in retrospect, I think, that, we, that social scientists may have gotten about as far as we can get in terms of understanding um, the way race affects people's uh, evaluation of candidates uh, with these sort of behavioral measures. And so we have turned to psychophysiological models, uh, which don't promise everything, but I think with the way technology has progressed, um, we've, we can learn a lot. So we partnered with a, a very um, accomplished uh, neuroscientist at New York University who has, an, has a functioning lab um, to start to show the same sorts of ads that we showed folks for race appeal and then ask questions of their uh, judgment of candidates afterwards. We want to measure the uh, electronic activity in their brain as they're watching these ads, and we want to measure their heart rate variation, and we want to measure um, th their skin conductance, and we want to watch uh, how often they, uh, they where their eyes move uh, on the screen when different parts of the ad are shown. Uh, the theory here is that so much of our norms are are move us toward the belief that, that we treat people equally and that we don't have prejudices, it becomes more and more difficult to try to ask questions to tap into those latent predispositions. And so we're going to try to measure how the body responds in a pre-conscious format um, to some of these messages and, uh, and see where we can go from there, connecting them in some ways to the behavioral measures as well. And, uh, and those are in the interim. Um, folks might be familiar with the implicit associations test out of Harvard, for instance. And um, anyway, trying to see how we can put these things together and, and make a greater sense out of how candidates might be affected by, by race-based communication. Well, it sounds like a really interesting project. Um, for the time being, um, race appeal, how candidates uh, invoke race in U.S. political campaigns, uh, which was published um, uh, last year, 2011, by Temple University Press, which I'm sure is available at their website and on Amazon, was published by Stephen Caliendo and uh, Charlton McElwain. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today.